Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Well, good morning, Three Creeks. My name is Joel. Happy birthday to Three Creeks. Uh, Somebody pinch me because I just love Sundays like this where we reminisce. And I was watching that video a little bit earlier of all these faces that God has brought into our family. And I wasn't crying, you were crying. I, it was, uh, it's just, a, I'm, I'm emotional, I'm getting emotional in my old age. I'm a lot more like my dad. I used to just make fun of him when he would preach and cry all the time. And, and now here I am, just doing the same thing as him. It's, uh, it's good to be back with our church family. We're, we're going through this series in First Peter. And if you remember, we were supposed to start this on our so-called snow day two weeks ago, Right. And so then, you know, this, my series on our church calendar, it kind of got messed up and, and I don't like that kind of thing. And I was like, okay, how, wh- wh- which week are we going to take out? And it's got to fit in this window, whatever. And I, so I just was trying to figure out how we were going to go, get to go through the whole thing. And so I just read through first Peter a couple times about a week and a half ago. And again, this week, just trying to wrap my mind around the whole book again and I noticed this theme that Peter keeps talking about as it's in, it's in almost every chapter. It certainly is in four of them. And I really felt like, I don't, I don't say this flippantly, I really felt like God wanted me to talk about this theme today here in week two of our series. It's a, it's a theme that covers the whole book. And as, he, as God is just kind of illuminating these little two-verse passages from all over the book of 1 Peter, just bringing them to my mind, almost like they're in a highlighter. I, I found myself having this discussion with God, like, God, I, I don't want to talk about that this weekend. And I just felt like God said, but I want them to know this about me this weekend. And I said, but it's the birthday party this weekend. It's supposed to feel like a celebration, God. I kind of feel like you're asking me to kill the party a little bit. And I just sensed that God said, this is what I want them to know about me this weekend. And the thoughts that start running through my mind are, well, they're probably not going to like this as much, God. They're probably not going to like me as much, God. And I'm, I'm sorry to admit that that means a lot to me, probably more than it should, definitely more than it should. I have this thought, what if, they, what if somebody's visiting and they don't come back? And I just, I just felt God say, Joel, are you going to be the kind of pastor that says what I want to say or what you want to say? Because I'd like to say something through First Peter to Three Creeks. And you're the guy with the microphone. So are you going to do it? If I'm not careful, I can, uh, I can quickly slip into this thing where I would, I would define a successful Sunday service as... Everybody walked out and thought, ah, that was good. I like that. But really what we're trying to do is have a Sunday service where God would look down and he would look and go, that was good. I like that. And those might not be the same. Is anybody tracking with me? 
those might not be the exact same thing. And so I humbly tiptoe into this one knowing that I really think God needs us to hear it, mostly me. Can I pray for us? Pray for myself the most. God, I just ask that you would fill me with more courage than I have in my heart right now. And would you just give me the words to say, help me to communicate your truth accurately. Help me to do it with love and with grace. Help no one in here to be confused today about who you are, how much you love us, and how much you hate sin. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, I'd like to talk today as a church family about holiness. And in 1 Peter, it's a theme that comes up a lot. And just to zoom out, in case you weren't here last week, let me give you 30 seconds on who Peter is and who he's writing to in this book of 1 Peter. Peter was the first disciple that was called, Jesus' right-hand man, unofficial leader of the disciples, denies Jesus right before he's about to be killed, and then Jesus reinstates him. So he's like a, a rash, impulsive, but forgiven and very humbled man. He actually does, Peter is this perfect example of immature to mature, like he really does grow up in his faith. And he becomes this pastor, this pillar of the first church. He's, he's, a, big, he's a big deal, but think like, think less Joel Osteen, more Duck Dynasty. That kind of guy, right? Like, he's rough around the edges. He's a fisherman. He just kind of says it how it is. And let me remind you who he's writing to in 1 Peter. Remember, he's writing in about 64 AD, and there's a tremendous amount of persecution on Christians. It's not cool to be a Christian. People are hostile towards this idea of Christianity. And where Peter is, he's actually in Rome, which is the center of the hostility towards Christianity. The emperor at the time is Nero. And in a couple weeks, I'm going to tell you more about this incredible persecution that Peter is having to endure. And he writes to all these Christians who are in these other cities. This is a map of the people that Peter was writing to in Asia and Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia. Peter writes this letter to try to encourage and challenge all of the Christians all over the place. And they're all living in the minority. It's not cool to be a Christian. It's not socially acceptable to be a Christian. And Peter, if you remember, he calls them exiles. Or maybe your Bible says aliens or foreigners or sojourners, but maybe the best way to wrap it up in one term is that they aren't home and they're supposed to feel weird. They're supposed to feel like they don't fit in because they don't fit in. And Peter's writing them to say, if you don't fit in, so be it. This is the life that God has called you to. He says exiles are to be set apart and that's probably the best definition of holiness that I can give you this morning. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be different. It's to be unique. It's to live differently and to think differently, to speak differently, to do all the things differently, to be set apart, to be holy. Even if it means being uncomfortable, set apart. I want to show you, there's four different places in 1 Peter. They're like two verses each. 
I want to take you to all four. It's a little bit more flipping than we usually do. I want to take you to all four and show you something that Peter wants these people to know about holiness. And then I think it's also what God wants us to know about holiness. So if you, if you have your Bibles or if you could turn them on, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is verses 14, 15, and 16. It's, it's a little bit of what Mike read just a couple seconds ago. Peter writes to these Christians, he goes, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Be set apart in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Like, if we live in ignorance, unaware of how much God loves us or how much God hates sin, then it makes a lot of sense to try to live a life that just kind of fits in. Don't stand out, fit in. Don't be that guy. Just be one of the guys. Just, just do what everybody else is doing. Go with the current. Life is easier. At least it seems easier that way. But what Peter's saying is that's how you used to be. You used to be ignorant. You used to not understand these things, but now you do. And because you understand how much God loves you and how much God hates sin, he says, be holy, be set apart in all you do. What Peter's saying, in other words, is live a holy life because now you know. Now you know. You can't claim that you don't know anymore. You have seen enough, heard enough, you know enough. Now you know. So, so live a whole life. Be holy because he who called you is holy. And he says, in all you do, that, that, would cover, that would cover in the ways that we speak, in the ways that we budget, in the ways that we do our taxes, in the ways that we celebrate. That we would celebrate differently than the average celebrator, culturally. That we would be holy and set apart the way that we plan for the future, the way that we define success, on who we choose to follow, on social media. These are all the ways in which Peter's saying, be holy, not in some of what you do, but in all that you do. Fitting in can't be the target. Being set apart and, and living a holy life that is different is the new target now that you don't live in ignorance. I'd like to go on record to, and say, I think being a stay-at-home mom is the toughest gig out there. And about two times a year, I you know, like to try my hand at it. So I push Morgan out and she'll take a trip with her mom or her friends and I'm like three days. It's like a lot of cocoa melon, a lot of Wendy's, but we're gonna make it, you know? And I'm like trying to juggle all three kids and keep the house clean. Like when Morgan comes home, I want her to know that like, this is no big deal. I can handle this. And uh, I get Cooper and Judah set up. They're watching a show and, and I'm unloading the dishwasher too, mind you. I'm like doing all the things that a stay-at-home mom does. And, and I leave the dishwasher door down for literally three seconds, run over to the kitchen and I come back and Willow, my one and a half year old, has a steak knife in her mouth walking towards me. And it's like, well, you know, so I like run over and like just slide it out of her mouth, you know. Willow's one and a half. She doesn't get punished for that. Why? Because she's ignorant. She doesn't know any better. She's in the process of learning these things. 
It's my job as her dad to love her and say, you don't run around with a steak knife in your mouth. If she was 13, if she was 13, put a steak knife in her mouth and started running around the kitchen, there's an entire different set of consequences that would come with that kind of behavior. Why? Because she's not ignorant anymore. She knows better. She's learned that I'm not out to get her. I'm out to help her. I'm out to teach her. And Paul, Peter writes, as obedient children, listen, you've got these evil desires in you. Don't conform to them like you used to. Be holy. Be set apart in all that you do. How this works itself out for me as an adult is Morgan and I love to watch shows. We find a show, yes, there's five seasons. This is going to last, you know, a couple months or whatever. And at night, we watch an episode or two or three or five and and we find a show that we love, and, and I'm going to tell a story, and it's going to seem like I'm one, really holy, and maybe two, really self-righteous, but I want you to hear me out on the whole thing. Uh, so like a month ago, maybe, maybe three weeks ago, we started, wa- I heard about Ozark, right? It's going to get awkward for the person who's watching Ozark right now, but uh, we're watching Ozark, and I didn't really know what to expect, just heard it was good. Heard it was kind of like Breaking Bad, so I was like, oh, give it a shot. And so we watch episode one, episode two. Basically, it's, it's just, it's, it's not very, it'd be hard to make a case that it's holy. <laughs> because it's people laundering drug money through strip clubs. And there's a lot of nudity, a lot of greed, a lot of crime, a lot of murder. Every time my kids come out of their room, we push pause as quickly as we can. We don't want them to see this. We can handle it. Four episodes in, the plot line is starting to build. It's starting to get a little interesting. I could actually tell Morgan was feeling a little queasy about the show as a whole. And I just asked her, I said, hey, how would you feel if we never watched this again? And she said, I would love that. (laughs) And, And we've watched other shows that are probably worse than Ozark. But in that moment, I just felt like God was saying to me, Joel, it wasn't wrong to watch the first four episodes because you weren't, you didn't know. You were ignorant. You probably could have looked it up and figured it out, but you just pushed play and and it's okay because you didn't know. But now that you know, now that you know that this is garbage, now that you know that this isn't helping you in your walk with Jesus at all, now that you know Be holy in all that you do. And I'm not trying to come across as judgmental because I'm telling you, I could list off the shows that, that I've watched that I wouldn't now. I'm just trying to say what Peter's saying is now that you know, live a holy life. Flip forward to chapter two. It's the first two verses. Peter writes, this is number two. He goes, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you can grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. As we get older in life, we begin to learn things about ourselves. And the older we get and the more honest we get, the uglier it gets. 
We look in the mirror, it's like, yikes, I did not even know that about me. And it's, it's rearing its head. And, and people that never mature and never grow up, they just say, well, that's just kind of who I am, and it's just kind of how I am, and it's who I'm going to be forever. But those that mature, but those that spiritually mature, that, that process is being able to identify things in our life that are unholy and asking God by the power of the Holy Spirit to help purge us from those things. To rid ourselves, as Peter says. So Peter says, rid yourselves of all malice. And he he talks about these five sins. He talks about malice, which is ill will towards other people, even people who have slighted you. He says, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, which include big lies and, and little lies and just fooling people not disclosing the whole truth. Rid yourself of all deceit and all hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you do exactly what you despise in other people. When I want Morgan, when when my chief complaint is that she doesn't listen to me, that's hypocrisy because I'm essentially not listening to her by trying to yell louder, you won't listen to me. That's hypocrisy. He says, Rid yourselves of all envy, which is that sense of discontent and jealousy of of somebody else who has something that you want, and slander of every kind, which is to speak damaging statements that would include gossip and and cursing and, and negative chatter about somebody behind their back. Even if you feel like you have the right to say it, he goes, rid yourselves of every kind of slander. It's not helping anybody. Only say what is useful and building others up. Rid yourself of all slander. This is what Paul, or excuse me, Peter's saying. And I read that list, I'm like, man, there's a lot of those in me. And I know our church well enough to know that there's a lot of those in here. There's a lot of those five, and that's just, that's not an all-inclusive list. But look what he said in verse 2. He said, like newborn babies, crave milk so that by it you may grow up. And when we grow up, what happens? We taste and see that the Lord is good. What Peter wants us to know about holiness is that God is better. That his way actually is better. Taste and you'll see that God's ways are better. A lie that we could be tempted to believe is that God's way is is not as good as our way. But, but, let, but play it out. Like in the short term, it's harder to tell the truth because the truth might have consequences. But what's a lot harder than telling the truth is maintaining a life that is full of lies. Right? Look at all of them. A, a life where you're full of malice, where you're full of ill will towards other people, and you're full of deceit where you have these lies built on lies built on lies, this life of hypocrisy, this life of envy where you just, you're never satisfied in what you have, so you're constantly wanting what other people have, this life of slander of every kind where you gossip and chatter and nobody trusts you, that actually is a miserable existence if you think about it. And so in the short term, it can be hard But in the long term, it's actually better. God's way is better. I was trying to teach Judah, my son, he's three. I was trying to teach him how to swing a golf club last night in my basement. 
I said, Judah, you just spread your legs like this. He always holds the, the club wrong, so I'm like, you got to hold it like this, put the club right behind the ball, and then swing. And he doesn't even try before he looks at me and says, Dad, but I can do it how I want. You can, Judah. You could do it however you want. I'm just trying to help you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to make your life miserable or more difficult. I've learned a couple things about the golf swing, son. Spiritual infants look at God's word and go, I don't know. I think I might want to try it my way. And those that spiritually mature look at God's word and they go, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do it your way. And, and, and the, 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 the thought I'm tempted to have is that, man, this, this holy life is almost this like, you know, God trying to put his thumb down on me. What, what he's actually trying to do is free me from this life. He's trying to free me from the life that I think that I want. His way is better. You will taste and see that God is better if you live a holy life. Ten verses later, here's number three. He goes, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, catch this, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. I think what Peter wants his readers to know and us to know is that if you live a holy life, people will actually accuse you of being wrong. And they will accuse you of doing wrong. And Peter acknowledges it right away. He says, living for God is better, but living for God is not easier. Because Peter likens it to a war going on in our soul. This is not a battle. This is not a, a fight. This is a Paul, or excuse me, Peter, he says, this is a war that is being raged against your soul. And so I take that as, it's not a matter of whether Satan, like when he's going to try to attack me, or if he's going to try to attack me. I need to take the posture as a Christian how is he currently trying to attack me? Which angle is he coming at me from right now? How sneaky is he? Because at no point am I not, is my soul not being waged war against. At all times, he is trying to get me. And as a Christian, if I play defense, and if I resist and prepare for those kinds of things, a lot of times to somebody who doesn't understand the war that's going on for my soul, that will look like serious overkill in preparation. It will look weird to somebody who doesn't understand the war that's going on for my soul. For example, a couple weeks ago, I sat with two, of, two other people who want to live very holy lives and they, they loop me into these in, in, intense and personal conversations. They love me enough to ask me very hard questions. 
And in the, in the pursuit of holiness, I'm, I'm being asked a question in this group. In the last year, what's the closest that you have been to an affair? And at first, it's like, geez, can't we just talk about sports and eat graters? Like, I don't know if I want to have that conversation. And, and to somebody who isn't aware that there's a war going on, that seems like a pretty intense overkill question. But to somebody who knows that there's a war going on, to somebody who has had dear friends not be asked that question, to somebody who understands that people a lot holier than me have fallen, I invite that question. I have to invite that question because there's a war going on. And by the grace of God and only by the grace of God, I was able to answer the question this year, not close, not close, but thank you for asking me because I, I know that you're trying to protect me. And that might seem like overkill and an intense question to somebody else, but I want to be asked that question because there's a war going on. If we live for God, people will accuse us of being wrong. People will accuse us of being dumb. People will accuse us of being self-righteous, boring, not enjoying all of life, wasteful, irresponsible, out of touch with reality, out of touch with culture. But what Peter is actually saying at the end of that passage, he goes, even though they accuse you of doing wrong, even though that's some of what you will have to endure if you choose to live a holy life, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, meaning that our holy life, if we choose to not do what we used to do, if we have learned and we don't do what we did when we lived in ignorance and we live differently, speak differently, invest differently, love differently, forgive differently, not hold grudges differently, forgive people differently, if we do all the things differently, our holiness, our attempt to be like Jesus actually could result in somebody else's salvation. Because isn't it fair to say that if we don't live any differently, then there's really no question to be asked. There's nothing to ask you about. There's nothing noteworthy about us that anybody would be curious. And so really, it's, it's kind of a gross misrepresentation of who God is if we choose to live like everybody else and choose to do like everybody else. What Peter's saying is that this actually, you living a holy life, you being accused of being wrong for living a holy life could be the greatest gift that you have ever given to somebody because it actually might turn into them knowing who Jesus is. But not living a holy life, having no good deeds or holiness to show, it's not that inspirational. And so Peter wants people to know what hangs in the balance. It's not just about you. It might be about people around you that are supposed to take notice of what God has done in your life. And then here's the last one in 1 Peter 4. For you've spent enough time, this is verse 3, in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So it goes not only from they're going to accuse you of being wrong, but now it goes even further. They're now actually going to target you, and they're going to heap abuse on you. 
I have been to enough church services and camps and retreats to know that sometimes when a message like this is given about holiness and sin, and, and I, 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 I have left those kinds of experiences where God spoke to me and I was going to go make a change. I was going to go make a, make, a, make a change in my own life and I, to be honest with you, was probably pretty excited to tell all of my unholy friends about it, right? Listen to how holy I have become from this retreat that I just attended. And I kind of remember just kind of walking into those conversations or those scenarios and being very disappointed because nobody was really that happy for me. And what Peter's saying is that if you're going to try to live this life where you don't do what everybody else is doing, be prepared. No one is going to clap for you. No one is going to cheer for you. They might not care, and if they do care, it's probably going to be the other way. They're probably going to make fun of you. You, if, if we live totally differently, and if we live a holy life, I mean, you guys realize that the gap between what our culture does and what the Bible says is, is pretty large. And so if we choose to go this route and go, God, I just want to honor you with everything that I'm doing, it means that we're going to not be invited to stuff. And it means that we're going to be made fun of behind our back. We're going to be falsely accused behind our backs. We might lose a friendship for a short period of time or forever. And no, one, no one's going to cheer for us or clap for us or think that we're no one's going to, I mean, you, you read the Bible, you go to a service like this, you feel like, man, I, I want God to change my life. I do want to make different decisions. And so you go back and <laughs> just plan it out. It's like, man, we've been saving for this house remodel or this vacation or whatever, in, in, in a service like this, or as you, as you spend time in God's word, you realize, ah, that's, that's not what I'm supposed to do with that money. I'm supposed to, I, I found this ministry or this church of all places, and I just feel like God wants me to do that. Do you think you're going to go to your spouse, and they're going to be pumped about that? They're going to think you're drunk. They're going to think you're crazy. It's not according to the plan. You think, I, I just, you think like you're in, you're in a relationship with somebody and it has crossed lines. It has crossed lines. You're not married, you're sleeping together, you're living together, whatever. And you, you know, you can go to that spouse, you can go to that fiance or that boyfriend and girlfriend and be like, hey, I really feel like we should pull back on some of that stuff. In fact, I really think that until we get married, we should actually, we should live in different places because I think that would actually be what honors God the most. Let me just brace you for impact. The boyfriend or the girlfriend, they're not going to be real excited about your newfound holiness. They're going to be pissed. You go to the next celebration, the next wedding, the next party, the next 
bachelor party, bachelorette weekend, girls weekend away, and you go, I don't think I'll have any. I know, I know, I used to, I just, I don't think I'm going to have any this time. If we, if we anticipate, like, people are going to be like, wow, tell us more about this decision that you have made. We are so proud of you. It's not going to go that way. It's going to be like, what are you talking about? It's not, this is what we do. And so I just want to, like, I don't know, brace us for impact that there are consequences to living the life that Peter's describing that God wants us to live, that this, this set-apart life is not inconsequential. It comes with cost. I think, I think maybe what concerns me about myself and, to be honest with you, what concerns me about us as a church, perhaps, is that we think that the standard that God is looking for is if we could just be a little bit more holy than some other people that we could find, right? Like if we can find somebody who, who does these things worse than us, then God, you could be at least like half happy, right? Like that's kind of good, good. And, and, and I think what Peter is saying in First Peter is no, no, no. This is not a comparison game. It really doesn't come down to what anybody else is doing. This is a your heart. Now you know. I'm calling you to a set-apart holy life. It actually might lead to someone's salvation. And I want you to do that no matter what it costs. This, this does not involve anyone else but you. And we get kind of caught in that trap of like, well, I'm doing better than them. I'm not sinning as bad as them, and so God must be like this. And then and it concerns me maybe that some of us are going and, and almost living another life. Like we come to church and we sing these songs, but then a lot of the rest of our life doesn't look all that different. And in a weird way, we might almost come to church to make up for some of our sin. Like we're, we're, we're living a certain way and making decisions that are just like everybody else and then we come to church to kind of just cover over it a little bit. Like almost if we could outweigh with the, good, the bad stuff with the good stuff in our life. And, and in a shocking twist, it actually, it's kind of hard to say, but it's true. It actually might be better if we didn't live the double life if you just pick a side. I mean, it's pretty clear, like God in the Bible says, I would really not, I, I do not like lukewarm. He goes, hot or cold, but lukewarm, I will spit that out. That's not what I'm interested in. And as Christians, part of our, part of the badge we wear, if you will, is that we're supposed to bring fame to Jesus. We're supposed to represent him, be ambassadors, bring fame to Jesus. But if we come here and people know we come here and we, we claim this relationship with Jesus and it makes no difference, then actually that would bring shame to Jesus because it's a misrepresentation of what he's doing. It's not an accurate picture of what Jesus is trying to do in our lives. Like he's a life changer. I, I know this has been, it's like, I don't know. I'll give you cupcakes in a second. Cover over. But 
Here's what's borderline unbelievable. Here is what is borderline unbelievable. Is that there is complete, total forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. There is complete and total forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. Because before Peter wrote any of these things about living these holy lives, before he did that, do you remember the first verse that Mike read right here 25 minutes ago? Right here, the first verse, I skipped over it earlier on purpose. I want to bring you back to it. Because before he talks about walking out this holy life, the first verse that Mike read said this. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. There's hope for me and hope for you because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.20, it says that where sin abounds, and if you're anything like me, sin abounds all around me and in me. Sin is constantly abounding. And as I study this passage and reflect it on my own life, I'm like, sin is abounding more than ever. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more and more. We get caught in this idea that there's like this reserve of grace. There's like, I don't know, 150 points of grace and we got to try to get to the end of our life without running out of it. As if it's like diminishing over time. And, and what the Bible is pretty clear about is that God is a gazillionaire in the currency of grace. And that actually when you kind of draw from the well of grace, it kind of multiplies on itself because it's who God is. God is Grace isn't a thing. Grace is in God. God is full of grace. God doesn't look at our lives and even in the unholy parts and, and, and think, oh, it's actually why he came. Do you guys remember? I'll, I'll recap it for you in case you don't know the story. There's this story in the New Testament. It's one of my favorites about Jesus interacting with people who are unholy. You realize in all of the stories in the Old Testament, when, when somebody's unholy or sick or, or kind of cast off, that's who Jesus runs to. And so if you've read this today and felt like, yeah, I'm not so great, well then, perfect. That's who God's coming for. Jesus goes to this one woman. We nickname her the woman at the well, and she has got a list of offenses. What does Jesus do? One, he meets her where she's at. Two, he forgives her sin completely. And three, what does he say at the end? He says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. The grace has totally covered over all of your offenses. And Satan would love this church service. He would love it if we all walked out of here with our heads hung low and our tail between our legs being like, man, my sin is great. But God would love this service if you were able to say, man, my sin is great, but the grace is even greater. Yes, sin really is that bad, but yes, the grace really is that great. 
you realize our acknowledgement of the unholiness in our life actually magnifies our view of the grace of God because it still covers all of it. It covers all of it. And really that, that grace that God is trying to throw on our heads, the grace that God is trying to get us to understand, whether we feel that or not, does not depend on God. Because God is already trying to throw it on us. What, whether we feel it or not or experience it or not, requires Oh, it's, oh, it's on us. Like it's, it's, it, it depends on our ability and our willingness to be humble enough to receive that kind of grace on our lives. It doesn't hinge on him. It hinges on us. And there's not a penalty period. And there's not a, 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 a time that you need to kind of earn your way back in. Because from what I read in the Bible, the man, the man, the Roman soldier who nailed Jesus' hands to the cross. Do you know what it says about him? It says that that day he walked away praising God. That's pretty nuts. A couple hours after slinging a hammer at a nail into Jesus' hand, that day he walked away praising God because he had been saved and forgiven and grace was all over his life. And do you remember what the guy next to Jesus on the cross said? Same day. He said, I I believe that you are God. And Jesus looked at him and said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. In a moment, there's complete and total forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Peter wants you to know, hey, there is hope. But the only hope is in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Friends, I'm a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. And I'm in need of a great savior. And the good news for me is that his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And so, so usually I stand by the door and it's like, I wanted to be like, hey, happy birthday, four more years, four more. But instead today, I'm gonna stand there with this posture of like, hey, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a great sinner. I am in need of a great savior. And there's hope. There's hope, but it's only through Jesus and not me and getting my act together. Because if if it's on me and getting my act together, oof, I'm in trouble and so are you. We're going to sing a song. There's There's one line in this song that says, your way is better. It's one of my favorite parts of the song. It's during the bridge. It says, break down the walls of all my religion. And he says it twice. We sing it back to back. Your way is better. Your way is better. And I'm going to ask you that before we get to that part of the song, that you think about whether or not you want to sing that part. Only sing that part. Only sing that part if you are willing to take this for real. And go, God, if you said it, I'll try it. Your way is better. But let's not do the thing where we come in here and, and sing one thing and live another way. Let's just, let's just sing it if we mean it.
Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.